back in 1968 in April, I was driving. I was driving from Boston to Canada. I was driving a 1959 Rambler, another one of those push-button transmissions. <laughs> it was the best car ever. And I was driving with Barry in the trunk. <laughs> now, you have to back up a little bit to 1951 when I was born. I am a child of the 50s, indeed I am. And it was just after the Korean War and my father was a Navy man. My mom was a Quaker. And they got married. And that was interesting in and of itself, but through the rest of my childhood, my dad was hook, line, and anchor attached to the Navy. He would live on base, hang out with the guys, have a drink most nights. And over the years, my mother would follow him from place to place to place. And they somehow managed to have four children, but we always lived in town, not with my dad. So we didn't know each other well, but my mother never spoke poorly of him while she would take herself down to the south to do voter registration when it was pretty dangerous and we didn't know it. My father had no idea that she was even doing that. Or she would take us to take blankets to the homeless people on the streets of Boston. That was that was my childhood from my point of view. Moving forward to the summer of 1967, my mother and sisters died suddenly in a very tragic accident. My brother and I were shell-shocked. We felt abandoned and orphaned all in the same breath. And then we had to go live with my dad. Now, at those days, the Navy would not let you stay in the service if you were a single parent. So my dad lost the Navy. And after my mother died, he was angry, he was frustrated, he was so sad about losing the Navy. <laughs> Three weeks later, my dad remarried after her death, and things went from pretty horrible to pretty bad really bad. And my brother's way of dealing with that was to challenge my dad at every possible step. Anything he could do to upset him, he would do. I, on the other hand, being the firstborn and the good child, was quiet. I did as I was told, and I hid out in my bedroom downstairs. And as time went by with the new family arrangement, I became even more withdrawn and more reserved. Not my brother, but I did. The other thing that changed in that year is that we had moved to a, yet another town. And I think this was the 13th school I'd gone to since I had started kindergarten. And I was a junior in high school. And I gradually became involved with an ethical Quaker congregation. Now, some of you the date 67, 68 will resonate because that is the time that the Vietnam War was raging. And it was raging across campuses, in high schools, in families. 
kids were terrified that I knew that their numbers would be called up, especially those boys who thought, I don't really like high school, I'm really not going to college, I think I'll be a construction worker or a mechanic. And they knew that dream was gone, that they might not make it to that dream. Well, first I started raising money to help with hiring lawyers or helping pay for marches and then gradually for more resistance until the following year came around 1968 and I moved to a place where I joined a group and was asked if I was willing to become what we called then a traveler. Now people have said to me, what do you mean traveler? Well, think back to the Underground Railroad. They were called conductors. They were called guides, leaders. But back then in the late 60s, we were called travelers. And I learned how to deal with authority figures. So if a policeman came up to my car, I could sweet talk him. If a Mountie gave me a hard time, I knew how to handle it. How do you deal with authority and not create conflict? So, finally, there was a young man who needed to go, and it was Barry. And Barry was actually a student in my high school who there had been no doubt in anyone's mind was not going to college. He liked his Saturday night beer, he liked to hang out with the guys, he was going to be a construction worker, and suddenly everything was falling apart. So I asked to be the one to take him over the border. Now to do that, I had to put blankets in the trunk, pillows, big jug of water, crackers. On the back seat of my car, my little suitcase, my little jacket, and of course, my algebra book, American history book, and To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> in the front seat, I had some jars of strawberry jam. But the most important thing that I had been taught was never to draw attention to myself. So I was wearing a plaid skirt, a white blouse, you know those Peter Pan collars? <laughs> Some of you in this room are going, <laughs> Some of you have no clue. Silver pin at the neck, navy blue sweater, matching navy blue headband in my long straight hair, and blue cat eye glasses. <laughs> I was the image, the perfect 1967 good girl. I was it. So I put Barry in my trunk and he knew the drill. He was not getting out of that trunk till we got to Toronto. For any reason, at any time, he had to stay there. So from Boston up through Buffalo was at least seven hours. And it would be more going over the border. And in 1968, the speed limit was about 75. So I drove 65 the whole way. If, if I did get to a stop sign, complete stop, looked both ways. If I saw a police officer, I made sure I was absolutely at speed limit. I was as careful as I could possibly be, but I knew that I had to keep on driving the whole way. And so I did. 
I drove, I sang songs to myself, I sang We Shall Overcome, and I sang just anything came to mind. Mostly popular music, I'm sure. But we drove, and we drove, and we drove, and we drove. And just before I got to the border crossing up above Buffalo, up at the, the passage there, pulled over, checked to make sure my hair was neat and brushed, and my headband was straight, that I pulled up my glasses, I made it really clear my books were showing on the back seat, and then I drove in. And I rolled down the window, and a Mountie came over, and he was so tall, I could only see his buttons. <laughs> and he had to get down really low to look in at me, and he said, whoa, hello, miss, and where are you going? Going to Toronto. I'm going to see my Uncle Mort, my Aunt Ada, and um, I'm going to take him jam for my mom. And mostly I'm going to see my Uncle Mort because I'm really having trouble with algebra and he's going to help me with my algebra before I have an algebra test on Monday. That's good, honey. Just go. Just go. <laughs> Never once asked to see my driver's license. So I drove. Now, what you need to know is I was resolute, I was calm, I was focused. And I drove on through, and I was supposed to watch for a yellow stake at the side of the road. And about three miles up, there it was, just like they told me it would be. So I turned right and went down this long dirt road. And the trees were all around. They were kind of coming over the top. And what was really interesting was that down the center was that grass that grows up, you know, that weedy stuff. And I could tell nobody had driven there for a long time, because I'm bushwhacking as I go. And I drove along until I found another stake, pulled left, and came into a big clearing. And then I waited. And waited. I waited such a long, long time. I think I even dozed, I was waiting so long. Until I heard the crunch of tires on that dirt road, and another car pulled in to where we were. Two older people climbed out of their car, and to me, they looked kind of old, kind of rumpled the way my Uncle Mort and my Aunt Ada would look. And the man didn't tell me his name. He didn't ask me who I was or why I was there. He just said, give me your keys. I handed him over, and he opened the trunk, popped it open, and there was Barry, ashen, sweaty, nauseous looking, and clearly having to get out of the car. And he pulled him out of the trunk and pointed to the bushes and there were Barry for a while. <laughs> the old woman said nothing to me other than give me your jam and gave me a plate of scones. They told me that I was to spend the night there in the woods I was perfectly safe, that nothing would come and hurt me, and that I needed to wait till at least one or two in the afternoon before I started driving home. And then they put Barry <coughs> in their trunk and drove away. <coughs> I spent the night, slept fine, was perfectly safe, perfectly calm. Got up the next day, changed my clothes, read my To Kill a Mockingbird, turned the car around, and started back 
and I went through the border crossing again, and another Mountie was there, not quite so tall, but I still had to look up at him. And he said, where have you been, young lady? And I said, went to see my Uncle Mort and my Aunt Ada. They live in Toronto, and oh, he is the best math teacher in the world. And he really helped me. I have a math test tomorrow, and I, I'm just so relieved. And oh, I have some scones from Aunt Ada. Do you want some? Go ahead, honey. Just, you just drive on home. Have a safe drive home. You'd be good. He didn't even ask me where I lived, let alone where was I going, anything. And I drove through and was feeling pretty darn good until about five miles past the border crossing when all of a sudden I had to pull over. And all of a sudden I was shaking and tears were pouring down my cheeks and I'm rocking back and forth and back and forth and I can't breathe. And it took a long time for me to calm down. I had to take a deep breath and to breathe and hope that my dad hadn't called my friend Kathy, who I said was going to be where I'd be over the weekend hanging out, studying my map, that it would all turn out all right for Barry. And in that few minutes that I was pulling myself together and calming myself down, I realized that I had done something that both my father, with his sense of patriotism, and my mother, with her sense of ethics and doing the right thing, would both be proud of. 